Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. We're glad that you joined us today. Our guest today is Mark Kellner. He is the faith and family reporter for The Washington Times. I've known Mark for 25 years, and we have been in contact over things relating to those subjects and more over this time. I admire his reporting and his writing style. In fact, I'm a subscriber to the online edition of The Washington Times. I get it every morning, somewhere between 4.45 a.m. and 5.24 a.m. It usually kind of comes into my inbox, and I really enjoy it. I love the way it's laid out, and I always look for Mark's work. We can follow his stories also on LinkedIn and Twitter, and perhaps other places that I'm not aware of. So anyway, welcome to The Cubic Report, Mark. Well, thank you, sir, for having me. It's a pleasure. I have wanted to do this now for some time. We've done a podcast before. It's probably been a year and a half ago after the National Religious Broadcasters Conference in Dallas, Texas. And we That's talked right. about we talked about uh, various uh, things at that time. And I was just uh, very impressed by how expressive you were. And it was so good to meet you there at the NRB uh, with all the other right. people that we were there. And there was a lot of activity in your sphere, of course, with faith and family. But you do relate to subjects that have to do with faith, but they also spill over into marriage, politics, science, history, and other things, including when you did the story about Queen Elizabeth's death, and also, of course, that tied in with her faith, and you were a major writer there. Anyway, you have done stories. We talked a little bit before the podcast about focusing on perhaps some major stories of 2022. And you told me that uh, in your work, in your realm there, that there are two stories that really stood out. One is about the life and death and legacy of Queen Elizabeth and even her faith. And also the other was about the Ukrainian-Russian war, which is very much on my mind. But we can't do both stories. We want to stay with one. And I would like for you to talk about that as being a major story is how you framed it, how you wanted to present this information, uh, what things we want to learn. Well, the one thing I believe that is without dispute is that we shall never see her like again. This is someone who came to the throne earlier than she expected at the age of 26, and she spent 70 years in service to her people as their monarch. You, you, you don't think of uh, the British monarch, certainly after the Magna Carta, as uh, someone who rules with absolute power. It's a constitutional monarchy. So uh, the role of Queen Elizabeth was more of a figurehead, if you will, or, or a national leader or a symbol of the national image than of somebody issuing orders that uh, the government and the subjects obey. So we're uh, 70 years that she spent on the throne is likely not to be repeated, certainly not by her son, who is in his 70s, I think 73, Yeah. uh, when he became king. Uh, He's not going to spend 70 years on the throne. I I wish him a very long and happy reign, don't get me wrong, but he's he's not going to be 143 when he uh, passes to his rest. So first of all, we're not going to see someone like Queen Elizabeth again. Second, from uh, the very beginning of her public life, uh, her first radio address in 1947 to the British Empire and Commonwealth, as it was known then, up until her very last public utterances, 
uh, her faith came through. She was someone who was grounded in a Christian faith and her understanding of Christian faith and who relied on the Bible and on her relationship with Jesus every day without any uh, shame or hiding it. Uh, her Christmas messages, especially over the last 10 years of her reign, uh, were more and more explicit in mentioning her reliance on God and her dependence on that relationship. For someone who had the position that she had to say that was quite remarkable. Billy Graham, when he came and talked to her, as you mentioned in your article, you know, she was very frank with him about her personal feelings. I, I lived in the United Kingdom. People don't talk about religion, whether they're right. private individuals or whether they're public individuals. But Queen Elizabeth was not afraid of expressing her faith. And I do believe that she kind of carried that close to her. And even in the remarks that were made at the funeral at Westminster's Abbey, uh, with Liz Truss, who at that time yes. was in a short reign. <laughs> we had the longest reign of a British monarch. We had the shortest reign you know, concurrently at that time. But she said things that were biblical. I'm sure that probably she was prompted to by, by Queen Elizabeth or by others. But it, it seemed like when I saw that, I thought, in a godless or in a world that's post-Christian, that was very refreshing to hear those things and thoughts of Queen Elizabeth. Well, it's it's very interesting that because of uh, the monarch's funeral, uh, you had the prime minister and I believe the other individual involved was representative of the Commonwealth. Forgive me if I have that detail wrong. But you had two prominent individuals in uh, the life of Britain and the Commonwealth. Liz Truss, who, as you say, had one of the shortest reigns uh, administrations as prime minister, and, and this other uh, public figure, each stand up and read passages from the scripture. And it's estimated that something on the order of four billion, that's with a B, four billion people on earth uh, viewed that funeral. And because of that, those billions of people, many of whom I have to imagine were not Christians, uh, were exposed uh, to these biblical passages and at least given pause to think about these verses of Scripture. Right. And again, that tracks back to the fact that you had an explicitly Christian monarch uh, who lived out her faith as best uh, she knew how. No, that was uh, truly, uh, truly remarkable. Like you say, four billion people, that's half the world's population had seen some part of that. I saw the right. I saw the Sky News's uh, summary of the whole uh, events of the day, which was extremely well done, extremely well done. And, but just all the people, all the bands, everything, the feeling of the people of uh, of the United Kingdom. And I thought to myself too, like you said, this will never really happen again. She had just her legacy, also her personal example, was something that has come and is fading into the past, into as we head to unknown territory. Indeed. And by the way, speaking of that unknown territory, may I mention that just yesterday, uh, November 29th, um, as, as we're recording this, the Office of National Statistics in Britain uh, released data from the British census uh, that was taken in 2021. Now, I'm going to have to explain this a little bit, so bear with me, please. Certainly. Um, there's, there's a voluntary question on the census 
that says, uh, would you specify your religion? And 94% of the people who completed the census volunteered that information. That's impressive. Mm -hmm. uh, what's even more astonishing, quite honestly, is what they came up with. Because for the first time since the Dark Ages, uh, which is a period, by the way, historians define as roughly being between 500 AD and 1500 AD, just before uh, the Reformation, uh, for the first time since the Dark Ages, fewer than half the people in Britain and in Wales identified themselves as Christians on this census. Mm -hmm. When you think of Britain, uh, you know, you can think of all sorts of things, but one of the things, if you study history, if you look at, you know, Britain over uh, the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, one of the things that it did was export, if you will, uh, Christian faith, and specifically a Protestant Christian faith, whether it was the Church of England, whether it was the Methodist Church, it sent those forms of belief into the entire world, not to mention tremendous missionary efforts of all sorts, not to mention, uh, you know, the printing and export of Bibles because uh, of, of the intense interest in Scripture. And, and uh, of course, Britain also, 1611, gave the world uh, the authorized or King James version of the Bible that was the uh, touchstone for so many millions and millions of people throughout the world. So you have that on the one hand, and now you have, uh, as I say, fewer than half the people in Britain and Wales identifying themselves as Christians. It's, it's quite a dramatic change. Well, I lived in the United Kingdom and in Brick and Wood, there was a right. church there that was turned into a lawnmower shop. You know? <laughs> I oh, was but anyway, in the 1800s, which was a golden age of missionaries, the British exported Christianity all over the world. You know, I, I was in India, in Mizoram, uh, in mm. the far, far eastern province. And that area is 80 to 90% Christian, would you believe? And right. there are Seventh-day churches all over the place. And of course, the Baptist and Presbyterian and, and the other church, and there's a huge Salvation Army building there too. I was astounded, but it was a period between 1880 or so and 1900 when all that came to be. There seemed to be an extra power <laughs> that kept that going. So it'll be interesting to see uh, this decline, how much of it will occur in our lifetime and where it all leads. But Queen Elizabeth is a harbinger uh, of the, the times of Christianity and perhaps the end of it? Well, it's a, a complicated and a difficult world. The greatest increase in Britain, according to the uh, Office of National Statistics in the last 10 years, was the rise in the number of people saying they were, quote, non-religious, unquote. They didn't say they were atheists. They didn't say they were agnostics. They just said they don't have a religious affiliation if you will. Mm -hmm. So uh, the possibility exists, as somebody said to me today, uh, that it, these people can be recaptured for faith um, through various sorts of outreach efforts. A lot of what um, some people would call friendship evangelism, mm -hmm. uh, where, where people get to know each other, exhibit enough Christianity that the other person would say, I want what they've got. Mm -hmm. And how do I how do I get it? 
so so there are possibilities there but again it's a stunning change uh it is going to be very interesting to see how this plays into the future uh, there's some speculation over uh, how king charles uh, will handle this because you know when he is coronated next year when he's formally installed as the monarch he will also be installed as the supreme governor of the church of england right the head of the church of england and defender of the faith not defender of faith as he once speculated in an interview 30 years ago but rather defender of the faith uh, the faith being the Church of England. Mm -hmm. It will be interesting to see how that plays out. When he uh, acceded to the throne, uh, he was very clear in stating that he was aware of that responsibility and would therefore uh, carry it out. But it's it's going to be a challenge, I think, in a world where secularism seems to be on the rise. It It was interesting to me that in a lot of the media, after the Queen's death, there were these discussions of religious faith. There were these uh, reflections and presentations of not only her religious views, but the spiritual components of the um, funeral and earlier in, in uh, 1953 of her uh, coronation. As I said, I think previously, there is some speculation as to how the coronation of King Charles will play out next year. As I understand it, the ceremony is going to be somewhat slimmed down, if you will, mm -hmm. and there will be representatives of other faiths in Westminster Abbey alongside uh, the leaders of the Church of England, and some of them may participate in the ceremony. I don't know. What I do know, what I have found out, and I, I think is interesting uh, to those with an understanding of history, is that the uh, Stone of Schoon, the so-called Stone of Destiny, mm -hmm. uh, that was in Westminster Abbey uh, for a couple of centuries until it was returned uh, to Scotland about 25, 30 years ago, will be brought back from Scotland to Westminster Abbey to be placed uh, below the throne for the coronation. So Charles, uh, as, as happened with his mother and as happened with monarchs uh, before them, uh, Charles will be uh, installed, he will be coronated, uh, sitting over this stone of destiny, which as you know, is, is believed in many quarters or some quarters, I should say, uh, to be uh, Jacob's pillow stone right. uh, from the Old Testament story that was carried to England by descendants of the Israelites who migrated there. I, I Whether or not every one of your listeners uh, subscribes to that, I do think it's interesting that that stone, which was so pivotal in the uh, previous coronations, uh, will be uh, at Westminster Abbey again for King Charles. Well, a lot of the subscribers that are listening to this do subscribe to, to this. <laughs> <laughs> right. We have an article, we have a kind of a little a mini booklet called The Throne of Britain, you know, where we kind of go into that. You know, we have we have talked about that over, over the years, about how the lineage of David, the David's throne, would continue right. on. And there's quite an extensive story about how it went through Jeremiah, his daughters went to Ireland and went to Scotland and, and Queen Elizabeth traces her heritage back there. So you will find that there is a very open audience to this uh, right. thing, which, which I think that there's a lot to it, and I, and I believe it. 
Well, regardless of what any of us think, and I'm I'm not in intending to demean uh, the notion, you have to ask the question: How did a country as small as Britain, uh, in in the larger scheme of things, how did a country I don't want to say as insignificant as Britain, but certainly not always seen as one of the major powers. How did Britain amass this empire that they had? How did they gain control of so many crucial passages on the world's waterways? At one point, Britain had charge of the Suez Canal. Uh, it still has charge of Gibraltar. It still has you know, various gates and ports uh, around the world that are uh, of, of critical importance. It had them as empire. How did Britain rise to that position, and uh, why has it uh, subsided, if you will? I, I believe the answers to that are rather fascinating, uh, and, and you can't say that it just happened by chance. There has to be uh, what Douglas MacArthur, I think, once called the strong unseen hand from somewhere right. that guided the destiny of the British people. and you know, by extension, uh, the portion of the British people who came to the United States and established America. I, I, no, the story is amazing. It's just not coincidence. Uh, the, 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 you talk about the waterways, all the things that uh, our country and Great Britain has and what other countries do not have. I mean, how, it's amazing that England, the size, you know, or Great Britain, the size of Georgia, would have that kind of influence halfway around the world. New Zealand, Australia, and it's still revered in those areas. Oh, yes. The, in Australia, I think there's more respect than, you know, just the things that I have seen on, on television for her than, well, I know that the United Kingdom certainly has it, but halfway around the world, that tradition and that loyalty and dedication is still there. And then there are countries like Russia, the biggest country in the world, many, huge, huge, two and a half times the size of the United States that has rivers that go nowhere or to the Arctic Ocean. <laughs> Almost the exact opposite of that. One is blessed and one is obviously not blessed. Indeed, indeed. And uh, the life of Queen Elizabeth, I think, illustrates that in several respects. Again, her faithfulness, her dedication to public service, and her unwavering commitment uh, to representing Christian faith not in a uh, showy way or, or, or a self-praising manner, uh, but just as a simple way of trusting God uh, for the outcomes in her life. That's a tremendous example, and uh, it's one I believe that just about anyone could learn from. Well, it's the Judeo-Christian ethic you know, that we talk about. In fact, I saw something right. here today that uh, they want to take the word Judeo-Christian <laughs> out of something here. I, I forget something in the United States. The atheists are all riled up about that. But anyway, the, it's amazing that those principles, those ethics have been the cornerstone of British law around the world. You know, I, I had I have worked in Zambia and had to do some legal uh, a work in that area. I was amazed as to how the court system was set up with British common law and how it was set up to mimic it, to follow just exactly the way the British did it. The level of corruption was much lower in areas where there was these British principles and ethics established rather than uh, 
not British, which led to all kinds of things. As you see in countries, and I don't even consider Russia to be uh, a Christian country, is, is a country where the law has very little application to people. Lying and brazen uh, violations of the law are, are the norm. And you don't have that in the English-speaking or the Western European countries. They're not perfect, certainly. I'm not upholding them as just prime examples. But enough has rubbed off to create societies that have been stable. Indeed. Indeed. The other thing that we should note, by the way, uh, is that uh, King Charles, uh, for whatever faults he's had, and uh, like any of us, he's, you know, he's a human and a sinner, King Charles has also worked out, shall we say, his own uh, form of Christian faith. I have the feeling that given the responsibility he will face in the years ahead, however many years uh, God grants him, uh, he's going to find himself relying more and more on that faith uh, because it isn't easy doing what he does, even if he's trained his whole life for it, and even if he's had a tremendous example uh, in the life and service of his mother and his uh, late father, he's he's going to need power beyond uh, anything that he has within himself. Uh, so I an, I anticipate that uh, King Charles, quietly perhaps, uh, will be a man of uh, far more faith and contemplation uh, than he may have been previously, and certainly in terms of his earlier bachelor days when he was a bit of a playboy, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing is, with Queen Elizabeth, one thing that she was always very respectful of was the role that she had of being the queen, you know, the chief monarch, and she wanted right. to protect that. And I feel that Charles, as he enters into that, you know, he'll put away perhaps, you know, the the days of youthful frivolity and, and, yes. and, and, and say, look, I'm the king of England. And uh, this is something much bigger than me, and, and take on that uh, particular role. So uh, we'll, we'll soon see. Indeed. Uh, as they say in Britain, God save the king. I would mention uh, one other thing, and that is that she had a tremendous respect for the position that she had uh, and, and, and the office, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, she... Uh, was not somebody who uh, was fr frivolous or flippant about it. In the 60s, uh, Tony Benn, who uh, was a uh, prominent politician and became the postmaster general, floated an idea that uh, the image of the monarch, either a silhouette or a little uh, photographic portrait, uh, should be removed from postage stamps because it would be easier to present various designs and so forth, uh, Mr. Ben said. Uh, he discussed this with the Queen once in a visit to Buckingham Palace, and uh, within 10 minutes of Mr. Ben's return to his office, he received a uh, rather direct and blunt call uh, from the Prime Minister saying, no, you're not going to do that, because the word came down. Uh, uh -huh. Britain is the nation that invented postage stamps, and from the very first one featuring Queen Victoria in 1840, uh, they were identified only by uh, the image of the monarch, and Elizabeth was not going to be the one uh, to jettison that tradition, uh, whatever uh, Tony Benn uh, or anyone else might have wanted. 
Well, that was, that was a very powerful image on stamps and money, too. I know that oh, I, yeah. as a youngster, I collected stamps. I like to collect them from around the world. I was amazed as to all the different manifestations or permutations of the queen that, that there were. It was just amazing. I mean, it really burned an image of a certain value, more than just the persona. It was something that represented uh, a way, and I, I, I was always struck by that. Right. Now, people have said that there's something about the British monarchy, too, that, that is special above any other monarchies, because, like you said, four billion people were interested in what had happened and some have said that it's been a monarchy where it doesn't have armies, it doesn't have power. But the thing is, is that it really does work with the prime minister. When Boris Johnson was prime minister, you know, he has to come to the queen, kind of officially asking permission. I guess there's something, that they, yes. a little uh, formality that they go through. And, you know, she talked to Liz Truss. You know, she, she was very much involved in that. And if other countries, like, say, Germany, would have had a monarchy, there would not have been an Adolf Hitler possibility because there would not have been that type of opening to uh, that type of indecent behavior. And some have said, at least the speculation, that if there had been a monarchy, that's what's kept the United Kingdom from having some demagogue uh, arise like some countries have allowed. Indeed. It, again, um, I think it's useful... Uh, for the people listening to this podcast uh, to do some study and to consider how a nation of the relative size and you could almost say insignificance uh, of 18th century Britain or, six, or, or 17th century Britain uh, rose to this position of world prominence and as a consequence, uh, there, there are some spiritual lessons there, I think. Mm-hmm. No, I, that, I, I, that, that's very, very true. And, and I think that you have uh, been one who has been theming that, you know, through through your writing, uh, Mark, which I have really appreciated. Like I said, I've become a real fan of the uh, Washington Times. You might just say a few things about the Washington Times, uh, because I know people are going to be asking me some of that. This was the Washington Post, which, which it is not. <laughs> no. You know, um, and also, well, I... I... I, I like to tell people when they ask me about the two papers, I like to think we're the better one <laughs> uh, in, in uh, D.C. We just celebrated our 40th anniversary this year. You know, the paper on its front page, we have a little logo and the words in there are faith, family, freedom. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what the paper uh, concerns itself with. And that's what our reporting seeks to involve itself with. Anyone can go to WashingtonTimes.com and uh, read our stories. Uh, Digital subscriptions are available. And if you take out a digital subscription, as you mentioned, uh, Victor, you'll get a link uh, to the uh, print paper, uh, electronic form of it. Mm -hmm. uh, So you can actually page through it every morning. And, uh, you know, we try to be responsive to the readers. We try to be responsible uh, in terms of journalism. And uh, we've got some of the best reporters in the business. Uh, the commentary section, which is something that I'm not involved with, but I read, uh, is a provocative and interesting and informative commentary section as well. And uh, for those people who are interested in the Washington sports teams, 
uh, I'll put our sports coverage up against anyone's. Yeah, you mentioned that last time about how excellent you know your sports reporting has been. Well, uh, given some of the teams, it's a challenge, but they do a great <laughs> job. <laughs> you know, being uh, being a Washington sports fan sometimes involves uh, many spiritual lessons in terms of patience, uh, in in terms of dealing with disappointment, and in terms of faith and an ultimate outcome. Well, Mark, it's really been great to have you talk take the time to uh, uh, talk to us here. I really appreciate it because I have a great deal of respect for you, you know, over the years. Uh, I consider you a friend. I consider you a person that I can talk to about things. And when I was president of the United Church of God, I just really heavily relied on, on tidbits that came from you. Well, that's very kind. Excuse me. I should mention uh, that your years of service in that organization are quite valuable and and given you know the spiritual turmoil from which uh, the united church emerged and given the challenges that any uh, faith organization has i i think you're to be commended for giving that level of service for that number of years to people who really rely on a good solid uh, spiritual leadership well, thank you very much. <laughs> I am awestruck. I am humbled by, by what you say, Mark. It's just very much appreciated. Great. Okay, well, I'll tell you, do another podcast, which you indicated you would, about the other, not today, uh, about the other big story of 2022, which is the war with Russia and Ukraine, which is a subject very dear to me, as I am Ukrainian and have been following that. Uh, my grandfather of blessed memory was uh, born in Chernivtsi, so... Uh, we'll we'll have something to talk about. Okay, we certainly will. Chernivtsi in, in the West. Okay, well, thank you, Mark. Just great to have you, and and we'll talk. May God bless you. Thank you, and God bless you. Take care. Okay. We thank you, our listeners, for joining us here today for the Cubic Report. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please share it and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Podbean, which includes information about this podcast. Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, Pocketcaster, and other podcasting platforms. You can easily find us on any browser address bar by simply typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your impressions and suggestions. So write to us at thecubic at gmail.com, V-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.